Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Sam Moppin is engineering today's program. We'll hear from Alex McFarland today. He's the co-author of 100 Bible Questions and Answers, Inspiring Truths, Historical Facts, Practical Insights. Yeah, we got a lot more coming up, too, so stick around. Well, masks are going away for good in Oregon. I say that in faith. Uh, They're going away for good in Oregon this week, but some COVID-era changes may remain, we're being told. Well, the countdown to Oregon's unmasking is uh, is on with the statewide mask mandate lifting on Friday and the emergency declaration soon to follow. But it won't be a return to pre-pandemic life, we're told. Some COVID-era changes are here to stay. We do have some glass partitions in some of our booths over uh, over the bar that will stay up. That's what one restaurant owner says. As the mask mandates lifted, businesses may still choose to require them. So they're probably going to be a part of your um, entourage, if you will, for quite some time because you can go into one place and you don't need anything. Another place, they're requiring that you wear masks. They're private businesses, and they can require what they choose. As the mask mandate is lifted, businesses can still choose to require them, and um, they also have the freedom to waive them. Uh, The restaurant uh, will keep in place other protective measures, this one particular, like sanitizing high-touch surfaces, requiring vaccines for staff, and increasing ventilation. Says this restaurant owner, we've also learned a lot about making sure that our airspace is really cleansed. Uh, We've updated lots with our HVAC system in the restaurant, so that's not going away ever. Well, as Oregonians take their masks off, and I'm hearing increasingly from people who say, I'm grateful that everyone can take their mask off, but I have no intention of removing mine. It's that freedom that you have to make that decision. Uh, The state will soon shed its COVID-19 emergency declaration. Washington state will also be ending its mask mandate this week. On the 1st of April, Oregon Governor Kate Brown will lift the declaration, which, among other things, made volunteers available to local governments and provided federal reimbursement for disaster relief. So does this mean there'll be an end to some of those state-funded resources like pop-up testing centers? Well, says Steve Adams, the Lane County COVID-19 incident commander, I think that we'll see some operational changes, specifically what that is, they're not quite sure. Adams says for now, all county testing and vaccination resources are set to continue, although it's unclear what will happen after April the 1st. Uh, There's hope that the federal COVID emergency declaration will still allow for reimbursement to the state as um, it takes steps toward normal life. Remember that normal life? Huh? Normal life. It's springtime, new beginnings and new starts. So that's exciting to think about for sure, he went on to say. But we're, uh, we're not leaving the pandemic behind just yet. Really? Don't forget. Don't uh, fold up your tent until you really and truly know you're not going to need it, Adam says. He says the public health will continue to scale their offering based on demand. So uh, if some new variant were to pop up, things might change. But as of now, Friday, Freedom Friday, I think that's what we'll refer to it when the masks become optional. Meanwhile, the Rose Quarter, they're going to lift both its masking and vaccination requirements for guests at the Moda Center and the Veterans Memorial Coliseum starting on Saturday, the same day Oregon's statewide indoor mask mandate 
ends. The organization had previously announced that it would lift its uh, indoor mask rule when Oregon lifted the state mandate, which at the time was scheduled for the 19th of this month. Well, the state re- uh, repeal date was later moved to the 12th, which I guess is Saturday, not Friday. Uh, in response to faster than expected declines in hospitalizations as the Omicron wave receded and the Rose Quarter confirmed in a Tuesday press release that it has adjusted its own schedule to match. The end of the vaccine mandate is a new development. The Rose Quarter's website previously stated that the rule would remain in place indefinitely. And as you know, in the state of Oregon, indefinitely has been redefined to uh, open-ended. We don't know. It's not indefinitely. Well, Oregon renewed the mask mandate has uh, been in place since August, prompted by a spike in cases caused by the Delta variant. Cases trailed off in October, November, but the mask mandate had not yet been repealed when the Omicron arrived in Oregon in December, sending cases skyrocketing again. Well, the vaccination rule was a voluntary policy that the Rose Quarter adopted in September, and they required all visitors, rather, ages 12 and up to show either proof of a full vaccination course or a recent negative COVID test to gain entry. Well, that policy will be lifted on Saturday, the Rose Quarter announced. So... Things are, in fact, changing. Well, legislation to boost job training, provide overtime pay for farm workers, and create more affordable housing dominated the 2022 Oregon legislative session, which you would have missed if you blinked. Uh, By law, it's limited to 35 days. Some of the short takes on the proposals the Oregon lawmakers considered or acted on or didn't act on. Worker payments, people who claim the state earned income tax credit on their 2020 returns or amend their returns by April 15th, will be eligible for a one-time payment of $600 from federal funds. Of $147 million, the Department of Revenue will start the first payments to the eventual total of 245,000 households by early summer. That was House Bill 4179. And police will be barred from stopping drivers for primary violations of five vehicle equipment defects starting January 1 of 2023. Single broken headlight, taillight or brake light, taillight emitting a color other than red, lighting registration plates, Um, Police can issue tickets for these violations if there is a separate traffic violation or other offense. That was Senate Bill 1510. School replacement, $120 million is set aside for the relocation of Harriet Tubman Middle School, part of a widening of Interstate 5 in Portland. Vehicle pollution affects the site in North Portland. That was a budget bill, House Bill 5202. Elliott State Forest, the $91,000 or I should say 1,000-acre tract on the south uh, coast will be converted to a research forest overseen by the Oregon State University under legislation that severs its link to timber production for the Commons uh, Common School Fund, Senate Bill 1546. And election workers, county election workers, may have their home addresses shielded from disclosure under legislation intended to deter harassment. And then, of course, there were bills that failed. The self-serve gasoline, if you thought you were going to have that opportunity, nope. House Bill 4151, which would have allowed motorists to pump their own fuel as an option to full service by attendance, died after February 6th. The 
public hearing by the Joint Committee on Transportation and the non-unanimous juries, the Senate Bill 1511, which would have set up a legal process for criminal defendants who were convicted by less than unanimous juries. That died in the budget panel after it cleared the Senate Judiciary Committee. Also, hospital workers, House Bill 4142 died. Uh, It would have classified assaults on hospital workers as felonies instead of misdemeanors, died in the Senate after it passed the House on uh, March the 1st. Senate President Peter Courtney hadn't assigned it to a committee, ruled out of uh, order of a motion by the Republicans on the final day to bring it to a vote of the full Senate. Republicans failed in an attempt to override his decision, and it failed to pass. By the way, the Oregon uh, gas price hit $6.29 at one station. Um, it was reported that Portland, one Portland gas station is witnessing regular gas prices at six twenty nine a gallon. That does not include higher prices for plus and premium power gas at six fifty nine, six seventy nine, respectively. According to AAA Oregon, it's the fourth highest gas price in America. Washington is the fifth, yet the state of Washington tried to pass a tax on their export exported gas into Oregon. That's right. Washington wanted to drive our gas prices even higher during an international energy crunch made worse by the largest land invasion in Europe since World War II. One of the reasons Oregon's gas prices are so high is because around 2015, the politicians passed a hidden gas tax called Clean Fuel Standard. It forced Oregon, forced rather, Oregon gas businesses to pay for higher eco blend of gasoline, which drives up the gas cost from 15 to 70 cents per gallon, 15 to 70 cents per gallon. This is an effective gas tax on Oregon rivers, but the extra cost uh, doesn't go uh, to the roads, but rather to private companies. So there you have it. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a look at some of the uh, news. We'll also hear from Alex McFarland, co-author of 100 Bible Questions and Answers, Inspiring Truths, Historical Facts, and Practical Insights. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Washington's legislature considered a gas tax on exported fuel into Oregon. It would raise Oregon's gas tax costs by as much as six cents per gallon. Washington has the nation's eighth highest gas tax. Oregon has the nation's 12th highest gas tax. Well, these are two greedy overtaxed gas tax states battling it out uh, over more and more of our pocket. Well, it all comes out in the wash, I guess. Well, in other news, President Biden on Tuesday announced the U.S. will ban Russian oil imports in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable to U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine, the president said during remarks at the White House. This is a move that has strong bipartisan support in Congress and I believe in the country. Americans have rallied to support the Ukrainian people and made it clear we will not be part of in subsidizing Putin's war, end quote. Well, the ban comes without European participation, but was made in consultation with European allies. We're moving forward this ban, understanding that many of our European allies and partners may not be in a position to join us. The president said the United States produces far more oil domestically than all the European countries combined. We can take this step when others cannot, but we're working closely with Europe and our partners to reduce their dependence on Russian energy as well. The UK is also expected to announce plans to ban the import of Russian oil uh, and did so, I believe, this afternoon. The U.K. ban will include a month-long 
uh, lead in time to allow the global market to adjust and to dissuade people from panic buying gas, officials told the outlet. Well, Shell announced uh, today that it would immediately stop purchasing Russian crude oil and would shutter its service stations in the country in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. On the same day, the price for U.S. gasoline hit a record high. The U.K.-based company's decision comes as the U.S. national average price for regular gas is $4.00. And 73 cents a gas uh, a gallon rather on Tuesday surging past the previous record of four dollars and four cent 14 cents rather set in July of 2008 according to AAA Shell said it plans to immediately end purchases of Russian crude oil on the spot market and uh, not renew contracts uh, unless given other direction from the government the company said it would shift its supply chain to excise Russian crude completely. Shell said the move, which follows a decision last week to dump its investment in Russia, is aligned with new government guidance. We will do this for um, uh, do this as fast as possible. But the physical location and availability of alternatives means this could take weeks to complete and will lead to reduced um, throughput. At some of our refineries, Shell said in the statement. Well, the company will also start shuttering its service stations, aviation fuels and lubricants operations in Russia, while kickstarting the, the phased withdrawal from Russian petroleum products, pipeline gas and liquefied natural gas. Meanwhile, the Polish government took Washington by surprise today by announcing that it was ready to transfer its 28 MiG-29 fighter planes to the U.S. with the understanding that they would be handed over to Ukrainian pilots fighting off the Russian invasion. The move, which came with a request that the U.S. supply Poland with used jets uh, with corresponding capabilities, came after a week of back-and-forth negotiations between Washington and Warsaw over transferring the jets to Ukraine, which needs replacement jets to fight the Russians. Well, the announcement by the Polish foreign ministry left a top State Department official, well, struggling to explain to Congress just what happened. It was not expected. I saw that announcement by the government of Poland as I was literally driving here today. That's a quote from Victoria Newland. She's the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs speaking to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee today. To my knowledge, it wasn't pre-consulted with us that they plan to give these planes to us. But as you know, we've been having consultation with them for a couple of days now about this request from the Ukrainians to receive their aircraft and where they uh, to donate them, whether we would be able to help support backfill in their own security needs. I was in a meeting where I ought to have uh, uh, heard about uh, that just before I came, she said. So I think that actually was a surprise move by the Poles. Well, Poland offered to send all of its Russian-made MiG-29 fighter jets immediately and free of charge to the U.S. airbase in Ramstein, Germany. In return, the statement said, Warsaw requests that the United States provide us, the Polish, with used aircraft with corresponding operational capabilities. Poland is ready to immediately establish the conditions of purchase of the planes. Poland also called on other NATO allies to operate MiG-29 jets to act in the same vein. U.S.-European Command declined to comment on the potential transfer, while a Pentagon official emailed that we've seen the Polish government's announcement, we have nothing to offer at this time. Ukraine also flies uh, the M-29 and has suffered heavy losses since Russian invaded. 
Late last month, top Ukrainian officials since asked other countries that operate the jet to transfer their MiG-29s since it would mean minimal training for Ukrainian pilots. By transferring the planes to American custody rather than directly handing them over to the Ukraines, the Polish government would sidestep the logistical challenge of getting the jets over the border. Though it's not clear if the U.S. could legally accept the transfer of the Polish planes. Well, the Polish MiGs were upgraded in 2013 and 2014 with new avionics and other equipment to increase their lifespan, though the Polish Air Force is focused more on its uh, growing F-16 fleet, along with its 32 inbound F-35s, the first of which will arrive in 2024. My understanding is, if I understood uh, some of the conversations I've heard uh, in the news throughout the day, the United States has declined that offer. Uh, not clear what that means moving forward for Ukraine. In other news, uh, Russia announced a ceasefire. The Russian armed forces announced the ceasefire regime on Monday from 10 uh, Moscow time and the opening of humanitarian corridors from Kiev, Maripol, Kharkov and Sumy, the Russian humanitarian headquarters. The decision was made at Macron's request to Putin. Many are skeptical about that offer because we've seen before it has been used as a pretext uh, in the past. In a growing consensus on Putin's next move, experts agreed with President Biden that Putin wants to, in fact, reestablish the former Soviet Union. If so, the world wonders, where will he invade after Ukraine? Russians in space, Russia's Ukraine invasion could put an end to its partnership with the U.S. and other countries in space, according to one former astronaut, Terry Virts. In a uh, a Poroshenko view, former Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko, he asserted that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal for the disastrous humanitarian situation. In a Supreme Court um, nominee uproar, Judge uh, Katanji Browns Jackson was part of a Harvard group that hosted a speaker with a history of anti-Semitic remarks. Whether or not she was directly involved in making that arrangement remains to be seen. Saying no to no-fly, Ukraine is urging imposing a no-fly zone over the country, but the Biden administration and lawmakers are firmly against that. Senator Joe Manchin says not so fast. The senator from West Virginia said Sunday he believed the option of declaring a no-fly zone above Ukraine should not be taken off the table. Cuomo's back, or comeback? Ousted former New York Governor um, Andrew Cuomo appeared to hint at a political comeback at a Brooklyn church on Sunday. Well, that would certainly be a miracle. Henry Enrique Tario, a leader of the extremist group The Proud Boys, has been indicted on a conspiracy charge in the January 6, 2021 Capitol attack, according to people familiar with the matter who spoke on condition of anonymity. Tario, 38, who lives in Miami, joined Oath Keeper founder Stuart Rhodes as the two most high-profile individuals charged by the Justice Department in connection with the attack. In recent months, Tario has described himself as a former leader of the Proud Boys. Well, the charge against him marks another major move in the multi-pronged investigation by the Justice Department and the FBI of the extremist groups who allegedly played large roles in the January 6th violence. From the start of the investigation, the largest in the FBI's history in terms of charged suspects, Agents have focused on the role of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, allegedly playing 
uh, in uh, played rather in driving the confr- uh, confrontation between supporters and then President Donald Trump and police stationed outside the Capitol. Tario was not at the Capitol that day and has denied that he and his group organized any violence at the Capitol. He was uh, ordered to stay outside of Washington, D.C. shortly before January 6th as part of his bond conditions after he was arrested for allegedly burning a stolen Black Lives Matter banner stolen from an historic African-American church in the city. The banner was burned the night of December 12th, which was the date of an earlier rally by Trump supporters who didn't accept the results of the election. Tario pled guilty to burning the banner and to attempted possession of a high-capacity ammunition magazine. Efforts to reach him uh, were not immediately successful for more details. But again, a longtime Proud Boys leader charged with conspiracy in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Mark Levin blasted President Biden as a disgrace for sanctioned decisions on the American oil industry while placing none on Russia. Nikki Haley told Sunday Morning Futures it's time the U.S. holds Russia accountable by withholding investments in Russian oil. That's been done now Two Ukrainian women or it will be done. It takes more than just an announcement. Two Ukrainian women who met with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken pled for more U.S. support. Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis says the war in Ukraine is another indicator of our new Cold War, which pits the U.S. and its allies against Russia and China. Judith Miller reminds the largest nuclear power plant in Europe is now in Russia's hands. And war crimes, the International Criminal Court opened a probe into possible war crimes, crimes rather after Vladimir Putin approved a special military operation in Ukraine. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're working our way through some of the top news stories of the day. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, Alex McFarland. He is the co-author of 100 Bible Questions and Answers, Inspiring Truths, Historical Facts, Practical Insights. That's coming up later in today's program. Well, tennis player earnings, Diana Yastrzemsak, or something like that, Diana Yastrzemska, uh, told the Lion Open crowd she was going to donate her earnings from the tournament to Ukraine. And a Russian conductor resigned from the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow and another in uh, Toulouse, France, after pressure about the Ukraine invasion. I hope they weren't held personally responsible for the events uh, called uh, all, called for under Vladimir Putin, unless they were personally in favor. I'm hoping that they weren't transferring the guilt that the decision makers um, bear to individuals who happen to be Russian. That would be foolish, but it happens far too often. Maria Bar- uh, Baranova resigned as editor-in-chief of Russia Today, or RT. You may hear it referred to a state-run media operation, also known as RT, last week after condemning Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has pled with the U.S. leaders and NATO to impose a no-fly zone over the country to no avail. The Ukrainian humanitarian crisis is coming into sharper focus as more than a million people are seeking shelter in neighboring countries. And by the way, I'm, my understanding is temperatures are going to drop dramatically over this next week, adding insult to injury to Ukrainians trying to find some safety. In an expected uphill climb, the president and congressional Democrats are facing an uphill battle against the midterm elections as gas prices continue to climb. Representative Omar blasted the president 
Uh, squad rep member uh, Representative Ilhan Omar hammered the president over reports the White House may ask Saudi Arabia to pump more oil. Russian oil ban. The administration has not only considered but now imposed the Russian oil ban. That will take some time to implement, um, but it's now been done. Laura Ingram said the Biden administration is taking America off a steep cliff. But the good news is that the midterm elections are eight months away. Mark Levin warned that Vladimir Putin will continue his apparent quest to destroy former Soviet states if President Biden and the West don't stop him. And that's uh, an open question. Victor Davis Hansen, one of the most unexpected, said rather, one of the most unexpected reactions to Putin's ruthless invasion of Ukraine has been the muscular response of a West supposedly in decline. Claire Christensen says the president, uh, his State of the Union um, address, he admitted that no one thought sanctions would stop Vladimir Putin from attacking Ukraine, begging the question, so what was the purpose? Jonathan Turley points out that the gut-wrenching Ukraine scenes have moved millions around the world to denounce the invasion and support Ukrainian independence. Newt Gingrich, K.T. McFarlane, Steve Forbes and Stephen Moore point out that over the last two decades, American innovations led to unprecedented breakthroughs across all energy sectors, including renewables and traditional forms of energy. The invasion explained Representative Brian uh, Fitzpatrick said Putin's appetite for reconstituting the former Soviet Union and his advanced age are reasons for Ukraine invasion. There's some speculation among some medical professionals that he had apparently, and that's in quotes, has Parkinson's, apparently. Um, the Paralympic Games, Ukrainian Paralympic athletes have taken Beijing by storm and have risen to near the top of the leaderboard. Ukrainian President Zelensky says Biden can do more. The president of Ukraine is requesting fighter jets, as we mentioned. Biden's response so far, we're uh, thinking about it. But it's not going to happen. Axios notes that those jets would likely be Soviet-era MiG-29s possessed by Poland, as we mentioned earlier, which Ukraine pilots are capable of operating. The U.S. would, in turn, backfill Poland's fleet with American-made F-16. The Wall Street Journal editorial board looks at why the president's uh, refused to help Ukraine. It's worth reading if you... Uh, can access the Wall Street Journal online. Meanwhile, a captured Russian officer admits they are committing genocide in Ukraine. President Biden ponders a Russian oil ban and has now uh, administered it. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the Keystone wouldn't uh, help gas prices. The White House Press Secretary suggested Monday that the Keystone XL pipeline, the construction of which President Biden canceled on his first day in office, would not have made a difference in the nation's skyrocketing gas prices. She made the claim in response to questions from Fox News White House correspondent Peter Ducey, who asked her why the Biden administration is seemingly blaming Russian President Vladimir Putin for rising U.S. gas prices, which hit a new record high uh, on Monday, surpassing the previous record set in uh, 2008, according to data from Gas Buddy. Kevin McCarthy weighs in, saying Democrats will try to blame the historic gas prices on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but the facts show otherwise. On day one, Biden halted the Keystone pipeline and issued a moratorium on new oil and gas permits on federal lands. Then he gave the green light on a pipeline for Putin. Biden, I did that. Stickers are showing up on pumps all across America. Florida Governor DeSantis has challenged a reporter on the uh, the leftist language regarding the Florida bill, his bill. While appearing at a press conference on Monday, Governor DeSantis was confronted 
by WFLA reporter Evan Donovan on what critics call the don't say gay bill. Does it say that in the bill, DeSantis asked. Does it say that in the bill? As Donovan attempted to respond, DeSantis interjected, I'm asking what's in the bill because you are pushing false narratives. It doesn't matter what critics say. Another story notes, nowhere in the legislation is the word gay mentioned, though the word parent is mentioned 32 times and the word parental is mentioned seven times. The legislation heavily focused on parental notification and parental awareness of what children are being taught or exposed to in school. Meanwhile, the Heritage Foundation looked at a a struggles parents go through as their children become targets. And Lindsay uh, Fifield says this is how uh, trans allies support children and protect children from their parents. Real uh, champions for mental health care. This is what the um, governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, is trying to protect children and families from, while both by being smeared rather as the don't say gay bill. Angry Russian mothers are fuming at... uh, Putin for sending their sons to a death trap in Ukraine. Uh, Sergei Sivliev, uh, governor of uh, one region in Siberia, stood uh, forlornly on a stage in a school gym as angry soldiers' mothers accused the Kremlin of lying. We were all deceived, all deceived, they said. They were sent there as cannon fodder, one woman shouted. They are young, they are unprepared, as Mr. Um, as the gentleman uh, shuffled and mumbled, trying to frame Putin's invasion of Ukraine as a special operation and not a war, he was shouted down by the mothers. Meanwhile, Dr. Albert Moeller says the Russian Duma adopted legislation approved by President Putin that would criminalize anyone for violating uh, by public speech or uh, public um, the official line given by the Russian government about the war in Ukraine. For one thing, the government insists it's not a war. It is instead a special military operation. It might be a crime that could lead to a sentence of 15 years for every occurrence if anyone, and especially anyone with a publication, anyone in the media should use the word war or in any other way violate or contradict the official Russian government line about what the government calls this special military operation. It's all about the semantics, apparently. In a rather unhelpful poll, the U.S., uh, if the U.S. were attacked, Republicans and independents would stay and fight, Democrats would flee. I'm not sure what the point of this is, as uh, other than to be divisive, but buried in a Quinnipiac poll is the question, if you were in the same position as Ukrainians are now, do you think that you would stay and fight or leave the country? 68% of Republicans and 57% of independents would stay and fight. Only 40% of Democrats would stay and 52% would leave the country. Also uh, worth noting, a slim majority of those 18 to 34 would flee. Florida's governor announced a new state policy against vaccinating healthy children. And in the very first sentence, this Washington Post news piece wants you to believe the idea idea rather flies in the face of recommendations by every medical group in the nation. Every single one. Well, that's quite a hyperbole bath from later in the story. Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo prefaces the change by deriding the school closures and mask and uh, and vaccine mandates issued by many states since the start of the pandemic as terrible, harmful policies. Florida is going to be the first state to officially recommend against the COVID-19 vaccination vaccination for healthy children, uh, Ladapo says. Carol Markowitz also weighs in. I happen to agree that healthy children don't need this vaccine as their statistical risk of a poor COVID outcome is already zero. But the real thing is that the CDC and the AAP are both politicized organizations which cannot be trusted anymore. And that's truly unfortunate. 
Bethany Mandel says, I enjoy this new round of uh, gaslighting on the heels of the news that the 5 to 11 shot doesn't even really work. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we'll hear from Alex McFarlane, co-author of 100 Bible Questions and Answers. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a judge has blocked the Oregon ban on letters from home buyers. Uh, the Democratic-controlled state legislature brought forward the legislation early last year, and it was signed into law by Governor Kate Brown back in June. Well, the lawmakers supporting the legislation wanted to prevent prospective buyers from writing love letters, trying to influence sellers because they claim that sellers might make decisions based upon factors such as race, gender, or sexual orientation. Well, a Texas school district is allowing teachers to carry firearms, The story notes that district employees who want to carry the firearms must have a license to carry and apply for the program to enter screening and training with the Texas Department of Public Safety, entailing 40 initial hours of training initially and further training on on a continuous basis. Shoppers are heading to dollar stores as grocery prices spike. Fresh food is replaced by cheap processed food-ish stuff. Dollar stores, aren't they more like $1.25 stores these days? Well, Russia has stepped up the shelling of cities. The forces stepped up overnight shelling of Ukrainian cities in the center, north and south of the country. Late Sunday, presidential advisor um, said the latest wave of missile strikes came as darkness fell. He said on Ukrainian television, he said the areas that came under heavy shelling include the outskirts of Kiev, um, north and south of in other areas as well, the country's second largest city. Another story notes Russian forces moved from neighboring Belarus toward Ukraine, capital of Kiev, don't appear to have advanced closer to the city since coming within about 20 miles, although smaller advanced groups have been fighting gun battles with Ukrainian forces inside the capital since last Friday. New York Times reporters witnessed the slaughter of a family by Russian soldiers, warning you get a very troubling photo of the deceased family right from the start. Russia is recruiting fighters from Syria. According to the story, Moscow is recruiting Syrians skilled in urban combat to fight in Ukraine as Russia's invasion is poised to expand deeper into cities. And President Biden is um, considering begging the Middle East to pump more oil. You don't want to extract it here, but ask the Middle East. The story notes a hat-in-hand trip would illustrate the gravity of the global energy crisis driven by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The president has chastised Saudi Arabia and the CIA believes that de facto its de facto leader, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, was involved in the dismemberment of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Well, from uh, Brett Hume, oh great, let's continue to restrict our own oil production and then go to Saudi Arabia to beg them to produce more. Well, the war in Ukraine leaves 1.5 million refugees so far. From a 60-minute story, late last week, the European Union granted refugees blanket permission to settle in any of the 27 EU nations for up to three years. Those crowding uh, in one area already moving on to the shelters in cities farther down the line. Um, And the crisis continues. Representative Gallagher reminds that uh, China rejected condemning Russia as they eye Taiwan Wisconsin Congressman Mike Gallagher says, I think it should uh, it should serve as a reminder that authoritarian countries with leaders who have no checks and balances like Russia and China and leaders who think human life is cheap can launch invasions that seem impossible for us to imagine. 
If the Biden administration is wedded to this approach that they are calling integrated deterrence, which is just liberal code for cutting hard power, I fear deterrence will fail again in a bigger stage, which is the conflict over Taiwan. A CNN reporter in Ukraine stopped a uh, report to help fleeing elderly Ukrainians. Um, Clarissa Ward, who was bold and impressive reporting on the botched exit of Afghanistan is now in Ukraine in that video. She starts helping citizens fleeing the Russians. She even speaks their language. Credit card companies suspended operation in Russia and Belarus. Now you can't spend using Visa, MasterCard or American Express in Russia. But China is stepping in to help Russia with their credit card system. Biden's Supreme Court nominee um, Brown Jackson has a high reversal rate. Even the very liberal D.C. circuit overturned uh, uh, Judge uh, Katanji Brown Jackson nearly 12 percent of the time. Oil hits one hundred and thirty dollars per barrel. That's up 10 percent on Sunday. There is a child care labor shortage leaving workers at home. The solution from the left, get the government to subsidize and pay workers more. From the story, the child care industry has suffered from a declining number of workers for years, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, with low wages and poor benefits. She said the pandemic gave more awareness to the issue, highlighting longstanding problems in the industry. The director of the National Child Care Association said the child care industry needs the federal funding to attract workers. We definitely have to have some government assistance similar to public school systems if we want early education and child care to be at its very best. President Biden sent Vice President Harris to fix the Ukraine war. Uh, The president is sending the vice president to Eastern Europe with a basic U.S. commitment message to NATO allies. The administration explained her visit will demonstrate the strength and unity of the NATO allies or alliance and U.S. support for NATO's eastern flank um, allies in the face of Russian aggression. It will also highlight our collective efforts to support the people of Ukraine. Harris is scheduled to visit Poland and Romania, two nations bordering Ukraine, that have been receiving hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing the war. The vice president, whose record as U.S. border czar has been one of abject failure, is certainly not expected to deliver much of anything in Europe. As political commentator Douglas Murray observed, nobody can point to one thing she solved. What's worse, she's repeatedly made a spectacle of herself and the Biden administration nearly everywhere she's gone. The so-called People's Convoy of truck drivers circled D.C. in a protest of COVID vaccines on Sunday. Hundreds of trucks, RVs and other vehicles converged on the Beltway surrounding Washington, D.C. as the People's Convoy arrived and engaged in its promised protest of COVID restrictions and mandates. Inspired by the Canadian Freedom Convoy weeks earlier, the People's Convoy in reality resembled more of a slow-moving parade than a protest as the two-mile-long caravan moved around the 64-mile-long Beltway loop to the blaring horns and waving U.S. flags of hundreds of onlookers. The fact of the matter is the protest lost steam over the last couple of weeks as the remaining states that had maintained COVID-related restrictions have recently lifted most of them. And across the country, there's a clear sense among the public that, for all intents and purposes, the pandemic is over. I'll put that in quotes because over doesn't mean gone. In yet another example of the cost of illegal immigration, a father who last week murdered his three young children and their chaperone in Sacramento in a church before killing himself was a national a Mexican national who was in the U.S. 
illegally on an expired visa. Well, the Sacramento County Sheriff Scott Jones put things bluntly. This unspeakable tragedy highlights the true cost, unintended or not, of sanctuary policies that prevent law enforcement from protecting its citizens. Nearly a, le- a year ago, the murderer was released from a mental health facility. However, due to Sacramento's sanctuary city policy, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement was never notified of his visa overstay. He was um, out on bail when he committed the murders after having been arrested for several charges, including assaulting an officer during the arrest. He was living at the church where the murders took place, and the adult victim, 59-year-old Nathaniel Kong, was an executive of the church. Well, so-called pariah nations are set to win big with Biden's nuclear deal. The leaders of China, Iran and Russia are celebrating Joe Biden's massive concessions to the three rogue nations and his bid to ink a resurrected form of Barack Obama's infamous uh, Iran nuclear deal. Iran got much more than it could expect, much more observed um, Russian lead negotiator. Realistically speaking, Iran got more than, frankly, I expected, others expected. Even as Vladimir Putin continues his unprovoked and illegitimate war against Ukraine, the Biden administration has no problem working out a deal with Moscow, Beijing and Tehran. That is a boon for all three, but not so much for the U.S. Clearly, Biden's more interested in reversing all of Donald Trump's successes than he is in securing a better future for America and the Western world in general. Atlanta hate hoaxers have been convicted. Three Black Lives Matter and Antifa uh, members were convicted on federal charges of attempting to frame the Proud Boys for acts of vandalism and arson committed against Antifa police vehicles and U.S. Postal Service property. The crimes were committed in October of 2020 in the lead up to the election. The trio left notes at the scenes of their crimes, such as Stand By, which was a reference to Donald Trump's statements during his debate with Joe Biden when he was asked to disavow the Proud Boys. One note attached to a brick thrown into a police vehicle window cited several Bible verses and stated, Stop the faithless elector, vote for the White House. All three individuals have also been indicted by the Fulton County District Attorney for their involvement in setting fire to the Wendy's restaurant where Richard Brooks was killed by police. Finally, lynching will officially become a thing of the past. On Monday, Congress passed legislation making lynching a federal hate crime. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act goes to Joe Biden's desk for his expected signature. Representative Bobby Rush, who championed the bill, erroneously claimed lynching is a longstanding and uniquely American weapon of racial terror that for decades has been used to maintain the white hierarchy. In reality, lynching is not a uniquely American weapon, and its use was not historically limited only to blacks, although it was used uh, largely on the, the black population. The racial component has been most associated with racist white mobs in this, the uh, racist American South. Finally, um, Rush meant to, uh, we think Rush meant to say, hasn't been used for decades. The last reported lynching was in 1981, not that long ago. Finally, an unmasked Republican has been fined while Biden's travel masking mandate is set to expire. Congressman Randy Weber, a Republican out of Texas, became the 12th Republican lawmaker fined after being caught not wearing a mask mere days before Speaker Pelosi ended the House mask mandate. Weber now owes $500 for stopping too early and adhering to the Democrats' uh, political masking theater. Meanwhile, Joe Biden's public transit masking mandate is set to expire in less than two weeks. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. Also in the second hour, Alex McFarland and his book, 100 Bible Questions 
and answers. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up this hour, we'll hear from Alex McFarland, co-author of 100 Bible Questions and Answers, Inspiring Truths, Historical Facts, and Practical Insights. Um, we'll also uh, tell you how you can help with the Ukraine conflict and uh, whether or not we're sleepwalking into a China-style social credit system. That's coming up in this hour as well. But first, a few more headlines. Israel's prime minister spoke with uh, Vladimir Putin and Zelensky separately in an effort to mediate the Ukraine crisis. Anthony Blinken says NATO countries have a green light to send fighter jets to Ukraine. And Ukrainian leaders have continuity of government, a plan if Zelensky is killed. They're not backing down. Russia's cracking down on dissenting media and blocked Facebook. Twitter lets Vladimir Putin keep his account. But if you're an American and you don't have the right views, you may not get to keep yours. North Korea conducts its ninth missile test in 2022. Essentially translated, look at me, look at me. The White House may extend the freeze on student loan payments again. And Utah governor says he'll veto the transgender youth sports ban. Squad member and defund the police advocate Ayanna Presley spent taxpayer dollars on private security. She can afford to defund the police. She's taken care of. Chicago public schools plan to drop their mask mandate on March 14th. The teachers union vows to fight, however, to fight the change without collective bargaining. Florida became the first state to recommend against COVID vaccinations for healthy kids. And the U.S. set uh, rather sent home the 20th suspected 9-11 hijacker from Guantanamo Bay. Shell to um, plans to stop buying Russian oil and gas while apologizing for recent purchases. And the energy industry swiped back at Jen Psaki's red herring comment on oil and gas leases. Ukrainian intelligence claims a second high-ranking Russian general has been killed, although that's unconfirmed. And the head of the top Russian state-run news organization has quit. Samaritan's Purse has deployed an emergency field hospital to Ukraine. And Volodymyr Zelensky has won the Ronald Reagan Freedom Award. On this day in history, excuse me, 1618, German astronomer Johannes Kepler, he devises his third law of planetary motion. 1948, the Supreme Court in McCullum versus Board of Education strikes down voluntary religious education classes in Champaign, Illinois, public schools, saying the program violates separation of church and state. 1965, the first U.S. combat troops land in South Vietnam as 3,500 Marines arrived to defend the U.S. airbase in Da Nang. 1971, Joe Frazier defeats Muhammad Ali by decision in what is billed as the fight of the century at Madison Square Garden in New York City. 1975, the first International Women's Day is celebrated, and today, of course, is International Women's Day. 1979, the technology firm Philips demonstrates a prototype compact disc, or CD player, during a press conference in... Um, Eindhoven, Netherlands, 1983, in a speech to the National Association of Evangelicals Convention in Orlando, Florida, President Ronald Reagan refers to the Soviet Union as an evil empire. 2008, President George W. Bush vetoes a bill that would ban the CIA from using simulated drowning and other coercive interrogation methods to gain information from suspected terrorists. 2014, Malaysia Airlines flight MH370, a Boeing 777 with 239 souls on board, vanishes during a flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, setting off a massive search 
To date, the fate of that jetliner and its occupants has yet to be officially determined. The plane was presumed to have crashed in a far southern Indian Ocean. Some have speculated the plane's disappearance was an act of mass murder-suicide by the pilot. But, of course, there's no way to prove that. 2018, on this day in history, U.S. and South Korean officials say President Trump has agreed to meet with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un by the end of May to negotiate an end to North Korea's nuclear weapons program. Psych. 2018 Mississippi, well, they met, but you know the outcome. 2018 Mississippi lawmakers passed one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the nation, making the procedure illegal in most cases after 15 weeks of pregnancy. A federal judge would later strike down the law as unconstitutional. And that battle continues in various states in various forms. Well, the two million refugees that have fled Ukraine for neighboring countries will be facing bitterly cold temperatures across Eastern Europe this week. A cold front swept through the region on Monday and temperatures will continue to drop over the next several days as an Arctic air blast settles in. It was reported the Ukrainian city of Maripol has no power, heat or running water in the midst of the harsh temperatures. That's just one of the many villages in the country without these necessities. The coldest day this week will likely be Thursday when much of the region will be uh, struck in 20s uh, in the 20s for daytime highs. That's the high in the daytime. In uh, another headline, General Breedlove uh, says the slowness of Russia's advancement in Ukraine is prompting wars um, uh, on civilians, and the U.S. is running out of time to prepare for a Russian cyber attack. What comes next is anyone's guess, and the window for our cyber readiness is closing. Well, the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander General Breedlove on Russia attacking civilians uh, in the area. Why hasn't cyber figured more prominently in Russia's war on Ukraine? Well, Russia is, after all, a powerhouse in this area, having successfully cyber attacked Estonia in 2007, Georgia in 2008, and Ukraine in 2015 through 2016. And to that, an unexpectedly difficult start of the current Long-planned campaign against Ukraine, and the question becomes even more perplexing. Analysts have many and varied views on the matter, and recent reporting has laid out almost a dozen different potential explanations. Some suggest there's a need for to uh, uh, to go there and that the possible downside outweighs the upside. Others suggest that Putin may still go there, just not yet. Well, the latter explanation is uh, compelling, if only because it requires us not to let down our guard and to continue marching forward on plans to expand and deepen America's own cyber resilience posture and abilities to withstand cyber and electronic welfare. I quoted an official last week who suggested that we are still in kindergarten and are wholly unprepared for that kind of cyber attack should it take place. Meanwhile, NATO members are mounting a huge operation to resupply Ukrainian fighters. Western countries are mobilizing aircraft, trains, automobiles to help Ukraine get more missiles, rockets to fend off Russian forces. In the space of two weeks, the invasion of Ukraine has set off one of the largest and fastest arms transfers in history. By road and rail, the Czech Republic sent 10,000 rocket-propelled grenades to Ukraine's defenders last week alone. In Poland, the provincial airport of Uh, The name I won't mispronounce, located about 60 miles from the Ukrainian border, has been so crowded with military cargo jets uh, that on Saturday, some flights were briefly diverted until the aircraft, the airfield space became available. This is NATO members uh, uh, 
largest operation to resupply Ukraine fighters as the battle continues. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with Alex McFarland, co-author of 100 Bible Questions and Answers, Inspiring Truths, Historical Facts, and Practical Insights. We'll also talk about um, how to help in Ukraine, some practical ways to do that, and whether or not we're sleepwalking into a Chinese-style social credit system. All of that coming up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I think those of us who are Jesus followers would agree it's important for Christians to have biblical knowledge, to strengthen our own faith, to have a better understanding of the Bible, and to be equipped to share our faith with others. Well, in the new book, 100 Bible Questions and Answers, Inspiring Truths, Historical Facts, Practical Insights, my next guest... Uh, Alex McFarlane and his co-author draw on their extensive knowledge as pastors, scholars, and Bible researchers to answer on topics on everything from creation to end times, highlighting scripture, a Bible history, and historical facts on topics that include Old Testament challenges, questions about the Holy Spirit, questions about salvation, and much, much more. Well, for over 10 years, um, these two writers have hosted a nationally syndicated broadcast exploring the Word and hope to offer guidance to some tough questions through scripture reference. They also encourage readers to prioritize time to seek answers independently and increase their knowledge in their faith. Well, Alex McFarland is a speaker. He's an author and advocate for Christian apologetics. He's the founder and president of the National Apologetic Conference, Truth for a New Generation, and is the only evangelist to have preached in all 50 states in only 50 days. Well, for um. More than a decade, he's been co-host of Exploring the Word. It's a nationally syndicated live Bible teaching program heard daily on the American Family Radio Network. He's the author of 18 books on apologetics and Christian faith and joins us today to talk about the latest he co-authored with his um, co-host, Bert Harper, 100 Bible Questions and Answers. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. It's a a great honor to be back, and thank you for that kind introduction. Well, you are certainly welcome, and you've uh, certainly earned it as well. Now, this is quite a a bold undertaking to take on some of the, the tougher questions that often come up in the course of conversation about the Scriptures, and to write a whole book on the subject. Uh, talk a little bit about the idea of creating the book and the fact that it's designed uh, for those who might have questions and want to pass the book along to others who may also have questions. Well, thanks very much. Yes, uh, we published it with a very wonderful Christian publisher out of Minnesota called Broad Street Publishing, and since 2009, we've done this program on the American Family Radio Network. It's called Exploring the Word. And, you know, it's an hour-long live show, and we teach through the Bible. But then in the second half hour, we open up the phones and we take Bible questions. And it's uh, unscripted. I mean, completely, you know, we, we don't know what the person's question is going to be until we put them live on the air. And so... By about the second or third year, people were saying, you know, it really would be great to have a book, like a reference book. And so what we did, um, I mean, it, it well, it started out it was going to be 200 Bible questions, <laughs> but we realized the book would probably be too large. So we trimmed it down just numerically to the, as best we could calculate the top 100 Bible questions from the first 10 years of exploring the Word, you know, 
Uh, how do we know the Bible is the Word of God? What about the Apocrypha? You know, um, what about Bible alleged Bible contradictions and questions, and not only questions about the Bible and the content, but just Christian living and making sense of the world. And um, there are questions about gender and sexuality and moral issues and the end times. And uh, we tried to keep each answer pretty pretty brief, pretty um, practical. And I, I really do, I praise God for this, Georgine, that I think it's going to help a lot of Christians, that it would be a good thing to pass on to those that are searching or struggling. And um, by Alex McFarland, Bert Harper, 100 Bible Questions and Answers. And it's uh, of, of this kind of book, it's got a lot of fresh research, and it just came out literally like a week ago, so mm-hmm. it's brand new. I should mention that you also have um, a final ultimate question at the end. So if you're passing the book along to someone uh, who is a seeker uh, and not yet a believer or follower in Jesus, there's the opportunity to read that portion or to share that with someone who is uh, genuinely interested. Yeah, you know, we uh, we after answering all these questions, we had a question ourselves at the end. For the reader, we said, you know, we have a question for you. And here's the question. Uh, if you were to die, uh, how do you know that you would go to heaven? If God said to you, why should I let you in heaven? What would you say? And so we, we share the gospel, what it means to know Christ, uh, how to have assurance of where you stand with the Lord. And and that's one of the beautiful things, I mean, that um, in Christ, we can have assurance. We, we literally can overcome doubts about where we stand with God. And, and based on what the Bible, God's Word says, not, not emotions or feelings, but based on what the Bible says, we can know, K-N-O-W, 1 John 5.15, we can know that we have eternal life through Jesus. And, Georgine, that's what we want. We want people to have confidence and assurance that they have the Lord in their life. Amen. Well, let me ask the, the one of the other ultimate questions for those who are skeptical about the scriptures. How do you respond to those who think the Bible is outdated or irrelevant? They acknowledge, okay, it's a it's a good book. It was useful in its time. How do you respond to those who have rejected it outright, believing that uh, we 21st century um, Westerners no longer need this antiquated resource? Well, you know, one of the things that uh, people have written about for really the last century is the hubris of the modern world, hubris kind of being arrogance. Because, see, truth, the, the, the real definition of truth is that which corresponds to reality. And so reality doesn't change. Rea- now, I, I, we've invented a few things. We've got some gadgets that they didn't have you know, even a few decades ago. But here's the thing. Uh, Human nature, uh, human gender, um, morality, moral boundaries, right and wrong, and yes, Almighty God and how our sins are forgiven, these things never change. The ultimate truths of life are the same as they were in the days of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the Apostle Paul, Augustine, Aquinas, you know, up through the ages, 
And so people that say, you know, the Bible is outdated, well, how how could an eternal God who is the the, the ground of reality ever become out of date? Um, it's arrogance, if not ignorance, to say otherwise. You um, have a um, have hosted a radio program for over a decade. Are there certain questions that tend to come up on a regular basis? It, it, can you generalize what some of our most basic and profound questions are? Uh, well, God bless you. Probably the most common question is some variant of what we call the problem of pain and suffering. Mm. Uh, if God is loving and if God is powerful, then you know why is there evil in the world? You know how could a loving God allow? anything from terrorism to violence to, you know, children who have cancer or something like that. And, you know, that's kind of an emotional question. So obviously we try to handle that in a very, you know, pastoral way because, um, you know, actually only the Christian worldview has a, a response to the problem of pain and suffering. Because, for instance, if you're an atheist or a secularist and you believe in evolution, well, you know, Darwin said that uh, the less fit species dies and gives way to the more fit species. So, uh, and if there is no God, there's no ultimate standard of, of righteousness. So the secularist says, you know, life is painful, there's evil in the world. Well, yeah, that's just how it is in a, a purposeless, undirected world. Richard Dawkins said that, said it is a world of no pity and no purpose. And that's not very satisfying. But then Eastern religion says, well, you know, there's the yin and the yang, and everything's entwined in this cosmic dance of good and evil. And so we say, okay, when there's sadness and there's tragedy, that's just how things are. But Christianity alone, Christianity does not deny the reality of evil. says, yeah, there's sin. We're in a fallen world, and, and that's painful. However, God has done something about it. God has gone to the cross, paid for our sins, we can be forgiven and born anew, and there's a new heaven and earth coming. And so while, yeah, this world can be challenging and painful, um, really only Christianity with a risen Savior and an empty tomb has has an answer. We're so talking. The, that's probably the most frequently asked question, some variation of why is there pain and suffering in the world? Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Alex McFarland. He, along with his co-author, Bert Harper, authored 100 Bible Questions and Answers. It's a, an excellent resource. I think we encourage our own hearts when we um, are reassured the Scriptures address these subjects and how uh, we can think about um, some of the more controversial things. We're prepared to address questions that others might have. A great resource to have in your library and certainly the church library as well. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Alex McFarland. He has been described as an expert on religion and culture by Fox News and CNN, and he's led conferences on apologetics and defense of the biblical worldview throughout all of the United States and internationally. He and his wife make their home in North Carolina. 
<coughs> excuse me. And his co-author, Bert Harper, served as a local uh, church pastor for 38 years. Now, describe for our listeners some of the seg- sections that are in your book. <coughs> oh, thanks very much. And again, Georgine, thanks for having me on. I just have such a great respect for what you do, and you're uh, a veteran broadcaster and uh, presenter of truth, and I really appreciate the chance to be on with you. I but, appreciate uh, your encouragement. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there are a lot of Bible uh, challenges. You know, the Bible is the Word of God. I, I firmly believe that, and uh, I believe that the Bible is a supernatural book. But um, while there are no verified contradictions, there are challenging passages, and we, we talk about what some of those passages are, you know, in Old and New Testaments. And then there, there's a section on questions about God. You know, how do we really know what God is like? And uh, it's funny you were asking about common questions. Interestingly, we have a fair amount of, like, younger listeners to our radio show, like middle schoolers and even elementary Hmm. schoolers. And kids, you know, pre-adolescent are very, very, very concrete thinkers. And one of the questions we get a lot from children is, is this, if God made everything, who made God? And so we, we address that in the book, and we talk about worldview, and um, we are in a battle of worldviews for our culture now, and we talk about questions about Jesus, questions about salvation, moral questions, questions about gender and sexuality, and Christian living, and uh, how do I find a good church, and um, what should the churches be on things like uh, abortion or even things like cremation. And then there's a section on what we call eschatology, which is prophecy and end times, things like that. So a hundred, you know, it's interesting. Uh, The book is a little over 200 pages and the publisher kind of was like, look, um, this is getting lengthy. We might have to do a volume two, but right now we got to kind of wrap it up. So, uh, believe it or not, it was kind of a challenge to adequately answer 100 questions and keep it at about 200 pages. So it's about 220 pages, but it's scholarly enough, uh, Georgine, I think it's it's scholarly enough to get the job done, but it's accessible enough that it's not going to, you know, kind of give people a deer in the headlights look. We We think it's going to be something that a lot of ages will resonate with. Yeah, I would agree. One of the most valuable segments, and they're all excellent, is this section on questions about sexuality and gender. I think the church is in in some quarters really stuck on the subject because the the movements that oppose the Christian worldview on the subject uh, paint Christians as hateful uh, because they may not agree on some of the the major um, uh, tenets of that movement. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, why Christianity says homosexuality is sin, as one example? Um, yeah, sure. And hey, let me let me just throw this out there to show you what kind of a battle of worldviews we're in. Uh, Georgine, um, we didn't write this book for money. Uh, in fact, um, any profit or royalties goes into the ministry. Um, Bert uh, and the American Family Association, that's a great ministry. I've got a ministry called Truth for a New Generation, and we, we tour all over the country reaching kids with biblical worldview. 
So we didn't do this for money and any royalties, what there are, go back into reaching people of Christ. Now, that being said, there is a Christian retailer, the third largest Christian, I mean, 30% of all Christian books sold in this nation are sold by this particular Christian retailing company. They called us, they said, look, if you'll remove any question about homosexuality or transgenderism, replace it with anything. Just don't touch homosexuality or transgenderism. We'll buy 10,000 copies. Hmm. That essentially would have been 5,000 for myself, 5,000 for Bert Harper. And so they came to us, they said, look, we, we will buy 10,000 copies. You just cannot touch the subject of homosexuality or transgenderism. And we said, well, but the Bible touches the subject of homosexuality. And so we ultimately, we said, no, you know, I'm sorry, we can't change it. Now, we, we love people. We try to be very gentle and pastoral, but the Bible talks about certain things that God says are sin. It's not because God is a bad guy, not because God is a bully, but God wants us to be saved. And the fact, Georgine, and we talk about it, and, and I know because when I was in graduate school at Liberty University, um, doing my master's degree, I minored at the graduate level in developmental psychology. And we had a professor from UCLA Medical School. Of course, I've, I've you know, read endless amounts of sociologists, psychologists, medical, mental health professionals, and I've written literally hundreds of articles, both pop level and uh, academic level. And see, here is the reality. Same-sex attraction and gender confusion, both of these are means of dealing with pain, pain or abuse, um, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, sexual assault. So the culture is pressuring the church right now to mainstream homosexual behavior. But in reality, homosexuality is, is not God's design. It's not what the human body was made for, but it's, it's birthed out of abuse. And if I'm going to do what my Lord says and love my neighbor, why would I encourage abuse? Why would I encourage something that will uh, further destroy the, the body, the mind, and the soul? And so while I think the way we handle questions about homosexuality is true to the Word of God and very pastoral and empathetic, at the same time, Georgina, I've got to say that the, the church must not cave on what God says about sexual truth. And just, just like the, the, you know, 30% of all Christian books are sold by this one particular retailer that, you know, dangled a, a sale, hey, please, you know, throw in the towel and cave and we'll buy 10,000 books. We said, look, we're not going to do that. Um, if I never sell another book in my life, I'm not going to betray what the Word of God says. And that's the challenge for all of us. Um, in order to be popular, in order to 
uh, avoid the attention that sometimes comes from speaking what the scriptures have to say in love and in, in the right way, but staying true to what the scriptures teach can be a challenge for us. And rather than shrink back, we need to make sure we know what the scriptures say and ask that the, the, the Holy Spirit will give us the wisdom and how to discuss issues that may be painful uh, to others. Our time is, is up, but I just highly recommend to our listeners today 100 Bible Questions and Answers. It's very approachable. You'll find it very useful. And I think help us all to articulate and think through what the Bible teaches on some of the challenging issues of our day. And I so appreciate you and your co-author for taking the time to pen the book to help all of us do better to represent Christ and extend his love out into our respective communities. Thank you so much. God bless you, Georgine. Thank you. God bless you as well. By the way, the book is published by Broad Street Publishing and currently available. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, a number of you have asked for ways you can help with the conflict in the Ukraine. Uh, Salem Communications doesn't specifically endorse or recommend any specific organization. Uh, they have provided us with a list of some nonprofits that uh, we know are currently providing aid to this region. Uh, and I've placed them on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. Among them, uh, World Vision, Samaritan's Purse, Doctors Without Borders, Voices of Children, uh, International Committee of the Red Cross, Save the Children, and others. But you can go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, and I have a list of what maybe 10 of them, um, International Medical Corps, Care, and so on. You can check that out if you're looking for a tangible, practical way to respond to what we're witnessing uh, in Ukraine. Well, in other news, while the uh, world fixates on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a huge threat is gathering here at home. Kara Frederick pointed out in a recent column that as Canada demonstrated, Western governments and tech companies are mobilizing to cut off mainstream Americans from public life and constrain their private lives. Actions like protesting government overreach, expressing anti-authority ideologies, and even sharing disinformation on social media may now be classified as terrorism. It's rather interesting because it used to be the left that you would characterize uh, in this way, and it sort of shifted to the other way around. Well, this is all typical of totalitarian regimes, which aim to bring all aspects of society under the control of an ideology. That's what Rod Dreher, uh, the author, notes. A totalitarian state aspires to nothing less than defining and controlling reality. Well, if that sounds familiar, we need to immediately arrest this momentum that we've seen gather in the last, well, really two years uh, toward a social credit system of our own. Now, otherwise, we risk mirroring China, where the integration of public and private spheres have created the most effective, um, efficient, tech-enabled totalitarian known to man, all aimed at social control. Now, in the United States, where you would never imagine this would be an issue, the increasingly oppressive collaboration between public and private entities is not enforced at the barrel of a gun. It arises from an ideological symbiosis between tech incumbents and government officials. It's allowed governments to successfully encourage tech companies to help police and discourse uh, the discourse rather of ordinary Americans. One example, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki admitted in July that the White House works with Facebook to monitor and police speech and later insisted that other private platforms should be doing more of the same. And we're talking about the United States of America. 
uh, to monitor and police speech. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas indicated his organization was working with tech companies to strengthen legitimate use of private platforms, legitimate use. Twitter reportedly deferred to California Secretary of State's office when flagging and scrutinizing questions surrounding the 2020 election and criticism of Joe Biden. Now, these tech companies that control the rails of communication upon which most Americans and billions around the world rely monitor viewpoints to see whether they conform to certain politicians' versions of reality. Free speech? Not so much. Well, if it's a ruling class narrative, tech companies defend it. If it departs from the approved line by suggesting the possibility of a coronavirus lab leak, for example, repeated uh, repeating the New York Post story of Hunter Biden's laptop or rejecting the existence of biological differences between men and women, it's suppressed. The ideological collaboration goes far beyond social media censorship, however. Now, the Chinese system of blacklists ultimately limits job advancement, real estate purchases, travel, ability to get a loan, and more. Here in the West, censorship measures have extended to online banking, web hosting, and email delivery services. GoFundMe. Buckling to pressure from the Canadian government and Ottawa police froze millions of dollars meant for the Canadian Freedom Convoy. Other companies like Airbnb, PayPal, Stripe, MailChimp and GoDaddy continue to purge accounts uh, to the right of center up and down the digital stack. Well, this expansive vulnerability engenders self-censorship. Americans are learning the hard way that they risk their ability to support charities, rent homes, fundraise online, bank, and even earn a living should they dissent from the prevailing orthodoxy enforced by the government and private companies working hand in glove. And we're in an uncharted territory here in the U.S. We've seen it elsewhere, but it's uncharted here when one market dominant company or uh, multiple companies within a specific market decides it's better to go along with the preferences of the government than side with individual Americans. It leaves those individuals with nowhere else to go. What comes next? Well, we're on a slippery slope to social credit scoring where wrong think leads to undesirable consequence. We're already seeing at least some of that. Will your individual climate compliance score be satisfactory? Suppose you use too much heat this winter. Sorry, can't get a bank loan to buy that new house. Pump too much gas for your family road trip? Apologies, no airline tickets for you next summer. Well, Americans have to recognize what's happening and combat it more effectively. If we do take strong measures to respond to this new and singular problem, which is as much a political, cultural and moral issue as an economic issue, then we forfeit our ability to govern ourselves. And this is clearly the direction we are headed. One final word, if you are looking to fast this Lent, and we are right in the middle of it, fast from hurting words and say kind words. You might consider fasting from sadness and be filled with gratitude. Fast from anger and be filled with patience. Fast from pessimism and be filled with hope. Fast from worries and have trust in God. Fast from complaints, contemplate simplicity. Fast from pressures and be prayerful. Fast from bitterness, fill your hearts with joy. Fast from selfishness and be compassionate. Fast from grudge and be reconciled. Fast from words and be silent and listen, which is precisely what we're going to do because we're out of time. We're going to go silent. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Before we go silent, I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.